Women aren't born warriors, we become them. And the road to becoming a warrior is bumpy as hell. Each week I'm interviewing women who through tragedy and triumph are leaping for greatness. Get ready to unleash your inner warrior. I'm Liz Swadek, and this is Conversations with Warrior Women. Right now we are over so many things, but one thing I am way over is ironing. I hate it, but guess what? I never have to do it again. Tom and Sherry's Iron in a Bottle is a miraculous way to remove wrinkles from all your clothes. It's a plant-based spray that smells like fresh linen, and when you spray it on your clothes, your wrinkles disappear. Now you can look great on your Zoom calls, save time, and look your best with Tom and Sherry's Iron in a Bottle. Go to TomAndSherry'sProducts.com to order. Use code WARRIORWOMEN10 for your discount. Welcome back, Warrior Women. 2020 has brought a lot of changes to all of us. In my life, 2020 has been a great awakening. The quarantine, the murder of George Floyd, and starting this podcast has opened my eyes to the rampant racism in our country. It made me question why I was raised the way I was raised, what I truly believed, and made me confront my inherent white supremacy. It was not a proud moment looking at myself and my actions and my thoughts in this light. Yes, I was enraged about what happened to George Floyd, but where was I when Trayvon Martin was murdered? Where was I for years when black people were mistreated, marginalized, and murdered? My inaction was still action. My looking the other way was a choice and still learning how to be anti-racist to let black leaders take the lead on a subject I am just beginning to get my head around, but In this year, 2020, there was one question that always stayed with me. When did you first realize you were white? The woman that asked that question is here today. We're going to learn about her, her work as a social justice life coach, and how we can heal this nation's addiction to whiteness and white supremacy. But first, have you left us a positive review yet? Please do. I'd be very grateful. Everyone that writes a review gets entered to win a drawing in my leopard slippers, and you know I wear them every day. Okay, on to our sponsor. Natasha Hemingway is a meaningful sales coach and speaker. She spent the last 16 years perfecting a sales system that works and feels authentic. Are you tired of having the same sales conversations and not having positive results? Are you tired of inconsistent sales? Are you tired of hearing no? I am. Natasha teaches you how to use the heart, not the hustle, to make your business a success. She helps you to have a sales confidence so you don't leave money on the table. She gives you a list of action steps to take control of your sales process. She teaches you to pivot in hard times, navigate challenging experiences, and maintain a strong brand image. Let me tell you, Natasha's the real deal. If you're not succeeding in your business, it could be your sales process. It could be your views on selling. Natasha Hemingway can turn your business around. So contact Natasha at natashahemingway.com slash hello. And that's two M's in the Hemingway. Natashahemingway.com slash hello. And learn to have an authentic sales process with a focus on something bigger than yourself and bigger than your business. If you want to spend more time with me, go to thewarriormoms.co. You can see recipes and gift guides and articles on everything from marriage to parenting to surviving the quarantine and the election. Um, But you also can get to the podcast. You can just click on the podcast link. All right, on with the show. Today, we're talking to a woman I really, truly respect and admire, Dr. Fran Bates-Oates. Dr. Fran has been an educator for 45 years and a life coach for 20 years. She's been life coaching before there were life coaches, I feel. I feel like this life coach thing has now become very popular, but Dr. Fran was doing it for 20 years, so forget it. Dr. Fran was awarded the 2016 Alice Phoebe Naylor Outstanding Dissertation Award for her dissertation entitled Women in the Mirror, Seeing Ourselves Anew, a narrative inquiry to the auto-ethnographic exploration of HBCUs relational and institute impact on social justice dispositions of white female education graduates. Fran is the first woman of color to win this prestigious award for her important work in her field. And I am thrilled 
to talk to Dr. Fran today. Welcome, Dr. Fran. Oh, hello, hello. I'm so glad to be with you and with this energy you're bringing to this subject. I'm glad to be here. I'm, I'm so happy to talk to you. I met you through Miss Tiffany Smiley of More Than Me. You guys have heard me talk about More Than Me. I'm obsessed with being a member of More Than Me. I bring it up almost every podcast I'm on. Um, but I met Dr. Fran through Miss Tiffany Smiley, and we, we went through this whole process together, and I just fell in love with you, and I love every word that comes out of your mouth. So I'm thrilled that you're here today. I love you, Dr. Fran. That's wonderful. Yes. Yes. Great company, Tiffany, and you and I, great company. Yes. Okay. So I am very excited to learn more about you. So in the 50s and 80s, or 50s through 80s, rather, you witnessed a lot as a young Black female growing up in segregation and overt racism, although I feel like we're seeing some overt racism now. Um, Tell me some of your memories and what that was like. So thank you for for, uh, giving me the opportunity to to do that, indeed. And as you hear some of these stories, um, I'll just tell a few brief ones. It is amazing how some of these things still exist in some forms. I walked to the back of the bus with my daddy when I was seven, eight years old, and I watched his mortification as he was told to hang his head in shame for not giving up our seats fast enough. My grandfather and I had to walk on what was called the right side of the road when I was five years old to go downtown and pay bills. So my granddaddy said, Uh, as a little girl then at five years old, my mother was teaching me about left and right, but I was not sure which side was the right side of the road. Right, right. (laughs) Yet as whites passed us, My grandfather, I watched him hang his head and he looked away as if he had done something wrong. I didn't understand. And in that day, children had their place. So you dare not ask any question about any of it. I went around the back of the movie theater and I walked with my friends up the fire escape to see the movie Gone with the Wind. It was in a cold balcony. There was no heat there. There was no bathroom for us. If we got hungry, we could go down, back down the steps to the front window, and they would allow us to buy the leftover popcorn from yesterday for 10 cents more. Uh -uh. Uh-uh. No. Oh, my God. Colored only was a sign I could read well before I could read any book. Elizabeth, Mm. Um, as a young child, and I was 11 years old, I saw a Negro man with burnt feet and burnt hands hanging from a tree. I, I saw a cross burning in a field more than one time. And even though my father, my friend's father told us to lie in the floor of his car, I peeked anyway. He said it was a dummy to reassure us but all I remember was fear. You see, I never went to an integrated school. From kindergarten all the way through my four years at college, at a historically black college, I I didn't know anything else besides my segregated world, my, my world of just all my black one race schools. I never had a white teacher until I went to this historically black college. And and so that, I walked into that even to be my cocoon. I I didn't come out of my cocoon. I stayed in that that place. Um, And so that's still, that's some of my stories in my childhood. Yeah. All the way up until I was about 11 years old. Well, I I have to tell you, I'm so glad you're saying this because, you know, for people like me who were not around during this time, just to hear the detail of of a simple thing like they would allow you, and I mean allow you, to buy the leftover popcorn the day before and charge you more for it. I mean, just that bothers me. I mean, and let alone having to cross the street or think about what side of the street you're on or think, I mean, thinking thinking of all the things you had to think about 
all the time, you know, like just sort of this low grade, constant, medium grade stress, just all the time of all the things you had to do, all the rule, unwritten rules, little magic rules that you had to follow or feel ashamed or blamed or, you know, afraid you would get hurt. It, I think it's really important for people to understand. Understand the, that that's what my paper was about. The, the dissertation, the double consciousness you had to have. I had to be, and this is W.E. Du Bois's work. I had to be black and understand that when I went back down to get the popcorn, I couldn't argue about that if I wanted the popcorn. Um, I had to understand where my place was, if you will, as a young child. And, and my parents would even say, be sure you watch your mouth, you know, friend, when you go out because... <laughs> I love you, friend. Now look at you. Now look at you, Dr. Fran. You you might get in a little trouble if if you uh, have some of that spirit that you show here. Yeah, yeah. And so, yes, you're, you're, you're exactly right. And that's the kind of knowledge that we talked about when I was working with these women. Um, What the experiences were. Yeah, I think it's, I, I mean, sharing our, we're going we're gonna to get into that because you know, you and I believe sharing our stories and our experiences is like the number one way to really understand and eliminate some of these racist feelings that we actually have about each other. Um, tell me what happened to your father. I know he was an advocate. I mean, because this also colors who you were and your thoughts and everything growing up, but your dad was an advocate against racism and discrimination. And what happened to him? My father was a very educated man, particularly in during that time. So he had a college education, which bl- most Black men did not have. And so he and my godfather, uh, my godfather was the chief of legal redress for the NAACP during that time. So he and my father would do different things. They didn't have law degrees. My father had a math degree. He was a mathematician. He was brilliant. He was the first African-American, he was called a Negro then, to uh, head the budget department at Fort Monroe Army Base. So he had, he was a very brilliant, intelligent man. They didn't have those degrees, but they went to represent other Black men. And so... Uh, all, all that we know is that Martin Luther King Jr. was killed on April 4th in, in 1968 in Memphis, Tennessee. And then 16 days later in Virginia, my daddy went to the jailhouse and in early morning he was brought home allegedly by white policemen. The question of what all happened that night is still a question till today. The next day, my father's cold body was discovered on the front porch of our home. And his eyes were shut from life forever. Now, I was told, Elizabeth, to not question that. Mm. I was told to be quiet and to remember my father the way I described him, a, a six foot tall, well-dressed, chocolate brown man uh, that I looked just like. And I was a daddy's girl, but I was told it was best for me not to question what happened. And Mm -hmm. so I didn't. And so that's been when I was uh, 14 years old, a couple of months from being 15 years old. So I could remember all of that. That's very vivid in my mind. I've been fighting that my whole entire life. Yeah, that's what I, that was my next question is how does something like that shape who you are today? Do you feel like you are still, I don't know about mourning it. I guess you're still mourning it, but a bit, how, did it, how does it shape who you are now in the work you're doing? As an adult, it never stopped either. It, it continued, it remained um, in 19... 19- 89, I arrived at the office where I was a principal in rural North Carolina um, on a Sunday afternoon. And I found a burnt cross at the window of my office. Mm. Um, The janitor told me it was best to be quiet in all of these matters. And again, I did. Because I was an African-American 
principle in an all-white rural community. So then my fear with all of this turned into anger. And anger that so many, I was enduring this, but so many more enduring it much more than I did. Racism began to shape my truths about this world and my soul and my spirit. But see, there was this bitterness inside of me that prevailed in my, in my soul. And it could, could have grown into a venom, I mean, that would poison Absolutely. my spirit forever. I mean, yes, look what it's done to some people. Absolutely. And now people will understand, I'm not excusing anything about any crime that anyone makes, but pain and fear and continuously, continually, and those are two different words, but continuously and continually facing that, it it does, you see how it manifests in different people. So to tell the stories and for you to give me this opportunity to tell the stories was, and it remains imperative so that the stench of that burnt soul that I saw will impact everybody's lens of this still omnipresent injustice in the world. I cannot let my father's last breath be in vain. 100%. So I cannot be bitter I can't hold discrimination. I can't hate and want all of that to go away. Right. What you persist, what you insist persists. Yes. I insisted on holding on to that, that I would still be sending out into the world. Yeah. Well, when I met you and we had this talk about race, you kind of shared some of your dissertation, which I thought was fascinating beyond belief. You asked that question. And I'm telling you, I've talked about it on several of my podcasts. I, I told you, I asked a bunch of my girlfriends. We, we were just sitting around the pool having a play date. And I'd be like, you know, when's the first time you knew you were white? I mean, I just started asking this question all over the place because it really... It it fascinates me because a lot of white women have never been asked that question. And it's really interesting where that conversation goes. Very interesting. Because immediately people bring up whatever kind of racist feelings they have because it's kind of how, whatever their experience is, right? So when you asked me that, you really blew my mind. Why do you think it's important to ask that question? Well, all of my work was with white women. All of it was with white women. And it became increasingly clear they had no idea. They hadn't ever thought about it. Because we, my, my first research was about whether or not this historically Black college was teaching them anything about this. That was where my interest was. Because these white women were going to that historically Black college. Yes. And so and you were trying I, to find out if, if, if anything was really even sinking in with them yes. because they were probably just sitting there just not saying a word, right? Not just, a word. Yeah. And see, we were paralleling each other. Our stories were, here I was, a Black woman in an all-segregated world that experienced this overt racism and discrimination and just had all of these feelings about it. But I stayed in my segregated world. Here, these women were the same. We were both the same. They stayed in their segregated world, their segregated communities, their segregated schools, their their lives, wherever they were in their class, socioeconomic status, but we were the same. And so their feelings were the same as mine. They just hadn't unpacked them ever before. Right. And And I realized that one of them said to me, When I check on a form what my race is, at the very top of that form, the very first racial identity says Caucasian, comma, white. So they check that. They know it's going to be there. And they said, and the rest of it is race. Everything else is race to them. And so they really never realized that they were white. They didn't have to. They were never begged to to that question of that in any of their experiences, any of them at all. I knew I was Black 
from the very moment that I can remember. And that was at two years old when my mom came home with my, with my little sister. I was allowed to go to the hospital, which you had to cross over this little bridge. And there was nobody there besides people who looked just like me. So that was my first time seeing that. And because we were in a segregated world, I didn't get out that much outside of that community. Yeah. And so the, the conscious level of the women that I've been working with, and there's nothing wrong that I always say, there is nothing wrong. Do not look at yourself as if there is something wrong. Because the first thing they say, and if, if people are saying, if women are saying, I'm sorry, I didn't know this was going on. I feel so helpless. What can I do? I want to contribute to this. I want to become a change agent. All of a sudden, they get that there is a world that they've been living in that is not a part of my world. Yes. The same way I realized that when I was going to be a teacher, that I had never been in a school with white children. I didn't know what they looked like in a classroom. I never had a white teacher. How was I going to teach white children? I've never seen that before. Mm. So we were all in the same boat, yeah. just in a different color of skin. Yes. What do you think? I mean, when, when you ask these, some of these white women, did the stories kind of come up? Did like, as I told you kind of my story that my, my story was really happy. I had a black pen pal and I was about as excited to have a black friend as anybody you could imagine. I was literally losing my mind. I had a black friend. I just didn't even realize I could have one. And then when I met her in person, I was like thrilled because we had been writing each other. And like, it was just such a positive um, memory for me. Um, and then as I was older and growing up, my, my, my family would make racist comments that were very... I don't know, violent to me. Like they would, they would say these things that were just loaded with such venom and it would shock the hell out of me because it was just not my experience. My experiences what were, wow, I think black people are great. Like, I, you know, so it was confusing to me. And even when I went to my prom with a black guy, my parents were very unhappy with me, but this guy was a very good friend to me. And I didn't want to go. I didn't have a boyfriend. And I knew if I went with him, I would have a fun time because he's my friend. And it was like, they just couldn't, they couldn't get over it. You know, it was like, they thought I was doing it to them. They thought I was trying to make a point. I was like, actually, I'm not. I just really, this guy's a really good friend of mine. So I don't know. It, it, it's, it's very weird. But I can imagine you get, you got a lot of interesting stories out of these women. And because it, it's a very vulnerable an exploratory thing to ask yourself, when is the first time you knew you were white or black or whatever color? And their stories were exactly like you said, Elizabeth, because they hadn't ever explored this before. These stories all of a sudden emerge. They were all, always there for them, but all of a sudden they can see them in a different light. That's why I called it you know, I wanted them to see themselves differently, to see themselves with a different lens. Most of their stories were about who they are. And so I also wrote this little quote, you are who you are because you know what you know until you know something different. And then when you do, you're never the same. So as they start to tell these stories, and I kept saying to them, there is nothing wrong. I am not pointing a finger at you. I am not saying you are the cause of slavery or your father or your grandfather. This is not about that. This is about you exploring who you are. Yes. And who you are as a racial being. So some of the white women that I work with across the years are at different levels of consciousness. So some of them say, I've never seen discrimination. I've never experienced it. I don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> what is this white privilege? What is the, and that's okay. There is nothing wrong. 
Um, I interviewed with the Ku Klux Klan. That I still can't. How do you do that? Over it, Dr. Fran. You, you, you do that. down with somebody with a cape. This, this is how I know you, you must have a cape in your closet. You are some type of super being because the, I don't know that I could do that. And here you are. You sat down. Tell me. Yes. Tell us about the experience of sitting down with someone from the KKK. And, and, and the man with his knee on George, George Floyd's neck. I pray for him every day hmm. because you understand that KKK and the man who, who had his knee on George Floyd's neck, both of them only know what they know because nobody made them explore that inner self of them. And the same thing with the KKK. I couldn't sit down expecting to change who he was about me. All I wanted to do was to get my passion on him. And so then the angrier he got, the madder he got, the redder he got, the more he got into his real conversation, the more I knew I was making a difference. And that if he never ever said a word to me. If he continued hating me, he would never forget. No. He will never be the same. And that's all I can ask. Yeah. That somewhere down the line, that inner soul and heart and mind of his is going to remember my little black face. Yeah. As a human being. As a human being. That's what we wish. That's that's what we've got to do this work for. That's why I'm doing it. Because if there's a little bitty light, that's all I care about. Oh, gosh, I love you so much. Um, how did you overcome your own feelings of discrimination or everything you've witnessed, everything you've lived through? How did you kind of process through that to get to this place where you can appreciate even a little light coming in? Well, that's the irony of it. That's why here I am as an African-American female. Now, remember, I've been a Negro, I've been Black, and now I'm an African-American female, according to somebody else's identity. But that's why I want to work with white women, because ironically, I get to my all-Black, uh, historically Black college, and there are French men there, there are people from India, there's people from Africa, and there are Caucasian white women. A Caucasian white woman became the director of my teacher core program. And she told me, Fran, you are brilliant. Fran, you're going to make an excellent teacher. She told me that I was going to teach white children. And I never thought about that. And she told me how to handle myself. Um, she, she took up for me when I was trying to get an apartment in a white community. Um, she, she came to the hospital to take care of me when I had a bad car accident. She gave me what I needed to go out into this teaching world. And with my Afro, and, and my way of being um, and my blackness. And she taught me how to be successful. So see, I saw a white woman in a whole different way. Yeah. And then the first day of school came and I was assigned to teach kindergarten. And these babies, oh my goodness, black and white hugging me by the end of the day. I love you, Miss Miss Bates. I just love you. <laughs> and I, you know, their mothers are happy that their children are happy. These jewels, they were jewels shining in the light. They were beautiful, innocent babies that I couldn't have any pain against them. Mm. And how was I going to want something different for my father? And for George Floyd, if I wasn't going to transform my heart and my spirit and my mind. So I wanted to be a black female that helps white females 
transform the way they think and they feel about race? Oh gosh. I just, I'm so, I'm so inspired by you. Tell me, so you became a social justice life coach. So you're basically taking all of these, all that's happened to you, everything you've learned, and you've literally found the perfect job for yourself. This is the perfect job for you. You have have found it. This is your calling. Um, Tell me about your work doing that and how that kind of works. Well, I work primarily with women. Um, I have worked with some men uh, because I've taught, you know, taught courses that I've designed with my my degree and my social work. But I, I believe the transformation has to be individual. I believe it's got to be inner work. It's got to be inner searching of your mind, of what you already know, of what you've already experienced, of your heart how you're feeling. One of those those white females was in a house where the father used the N-word every day mm. and, and didn't, didn't care anything about her first because she was a woman. So race is one part of it, but there's gender discrimination, sexual orientation discrimination, classism, poverty. There's so much more that I can work with in this whole social justice realm. But I have two modules. The first, who am I? Working through who am I individually. You cannot, I cannot point the finger at you, Elizabeth, and say that you are the problem. I had to go inside Fran and figure out, Fran, you're a little bit of the problem too. <laughs> uh, you you got to get it together if you're going to call yourself a teacher. Uh, and molding children into the future. And then the second part is, who am I as a racial being? Mm. So that's the coaching that I do. And and most of the, like I said, most of the women really want to understand what's happening to them. Well, if they're willing to even come to you, right? That shows you that they're willing to at least open their mind to to even speaking about it, right? Or interested. Yes. And I have to create a, an, um, a, a trust because, you know, what white woman wants to come to a black woman that's going to be blasting her? Um, you know, I, I, they don't want to be ridiculed. And that's what they say. I'm afraid to talk about this or to work through this at all with anybody. Right. Uh, at first, I don't want my friends to be mad with me if I'm trying to work through it. And then here you are as a black woman. I don't want you to to blame me for everything that's going on. I don't want to say something wrong. Um, I, I, you know, did I say something wrong? You know, I, you know, I'm tired of people, you know, fussing at me. They they don't want those things. So if there's any woman out there that's listening and that's feeling some of that, that's who I am. That's that's why I say I'm a social justice life coach, because I want to help them work through some of those questions and to do it in what I call a sacred space. Because I can't point a finger. I had hate and discrimination myself. Yeah. Well, I think that you are a safe and sacred space to do that with. And I, I do think that women, you know, whoever's listening, there's definitely some women who I think are curious. I have, I, I even feel like, you know, over this time and learning, I really, it's just been, it's kind of a scary thing when you realize a lot of the things you were taught and a lot of the things you were doing unknowingly were contributing to the problem. Like you really, it's very hard to accept because you consider yourself a good person. And then you start thinking about all these things and it makes you feel terrible. But to me, I had to push through that. I had to say, no, let's just just keep going because it's not about you feeling terrible. It's about you learning and unlearning. And you have to just forgive yourself and, and keep going forward so you can keep learning. And even I'm learning today with you, even the things you're telling me, even the way you were describing, you know, when you're in your own white world, it is a bubble. It is a bubble. You know, I have some black friends, but I'm not living in a black community. That's not my experience. So I still am living in my white bubble, although I'm trying to penetrate that bubble (laughs) in many ways. 
but it is, you know, it is, it is work that I think a lot of women want to do, but they are scared. But you just described the client that I want. You just described it all. The, the person that I want to be with. Because I, you, you, I think I sent you what my vision statement is. I, you know, I want to be that person such that who I am being when I'm with you creates this, this ripple effect across the universe. So, so who I'm being while I'm with you today, Elizabeth, I want that to create this ripple effect across the universe that would cause us to have justice and peace, wholeness. And when we do, then we can have these endless possibilities of bridging where we're divided. Yeah. Of bridging where we're divided. I want to have that kind of influence. So the woman that you described was me. You see, I was that that wounded. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to ask. And every time you did, how dare you um, ask? So I understand. Yeah, it's two sides very, of the same coin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And we really do mirror each other. That's why I call it women in the mirror, seeing ourselves anew. Yes. Yes. If you go and look in the mirror right now, I guarantee you, look in the mirror, step away, back into the world. Now go back to the same mirror. You will not see the same thing. It's not, you don't see the same. You're not looking for the same. That eyelash is going to be in a different place. Some of the lipstick might not be that, you know, you're, yeah. you're moving your hairs. It's never the same. Yeah. So seeing ourselves anew is, is, is what my passion is. That's what drives me. Um, I love it. I love it. Well, I feel like, you know, I, I want to mention we are on the verge, it seems, of getting a black vice president. I mean, it seems like this might be happening. It has not been formally announced, but this is what seems to be happening, which is incredible on so many levels. We've got a woman and a woman of color, no less, coming in as a, as a vice uh, president. I want to talk about that because there's so much division. There's so much unrest. We're so uh, divided right now. What can we do? to come together. Like, I mean, you're not going to be able to talk to every single person, but you are going to hear a lot. A lot of people are going to hear you on this podcast. What can we do as a nation to come together and embrace the fact that we are completely different and have completely different ideas about how this nation should be? The the only way that, that it has worked for me is to have conversations. And I know I can't deal with every individual, but we're not talking to each other right now. We are so deadlocked into where we are. No, we are not in conversation. We are not in conversation. We are very much, this is my corner. This is where I'm going to stand. I don't care what you say, I'm not going to move. And so whatever you insist on is going to persist. I said that before. It's not going to change when we stay in our corners. It will take leadership. And I also want to be very open and wise that whatever leadership comes is in for a battle. Oh gosh, yes. To bring our division. And if those people who are there are never going to be willing to come into conversation, we have got to have some of the people who are highly respected open up those conversations. And they have to be big conversations. The same way we've had rallies, um, they've got to be conversations. The town halls are conversations. They are hard. It takes a special person 
to be able to handle a town hall with this kind of conversation. Yes, because you have to be willing to listen. <laughs> and Even if the person uh, is saying something that you truly do not agree or like. <laughs> yeah. And you've got to be willing to stay in that place. There's sometimes after some of the workshops that I've done and some of the things that I've heard, I've gone home, Elizabeth, put my head down and cried. Yes. And then I wipe those tears up. I get off of my behind and I go back to the work. That's what it's going to take. We got, I heard you say, we've got to be uncomfortable. We've got to grapple with this. Um, it, it, it's not going to be an easy conversation for everybody. It's not an easy conversation for me to have. But we've got to grapple with the uncomfort. We've got to be uncomfortable. That includes me. Because I, I don't want Black people to think we're on one side and we are, everybody else in the world is all wrong. We got some conversations we need to have. And they're tough conversations. And unless we have those, um, religion has not done it. Rioting and looting is not doing it. Um, telling lies and untruths, they're not doing it. Um, there is nothing that we are currently doing that's going to break that division. And it will take some time. And deliberate, deliberate uh, kind of deliberate kind of planning. It can't just be, oh, let's have some courageous conversations. You know, I'll set up a Zoom meeting for that. No, we've we've got to talk about one one of those conversations has to be why the rioting. One of the conversation conversations has to be why the hate. What is the hate? Where did the hate come from? Yeah, where does it stem from? Yeah, where did where did it come from? And let's talk about that. How to dispel that? And those aren't easy conversations. Nor is it a quick fix. Yeah, um, this is a long haul. I have definitely noticed, you know, when people, even on those programs where they, you know, they go into the opposite party or they go into the opposite person's camp and they ask them like, well, why, why are you voting for this one? Or why, why are you doing that? Why are you making that move? A lot of times they don't know. They do not they, they know. don't even really have an answer. It, it's a funny thing, but like, it's not funny. No. It, it's almost like an autopilot response and you really are not in touch with any internal thought that would make you question whether that's a good idea or not. Or is this, oh, is this a, even a, is this even getting benefiting me in yeah. any way to act this way? And, and and is it getting me what I want? Clearly, both sides are not getting what they want. It's clear. Why do we keep doing it? <laughs> it's very clear. It's not a question for us to ask. It's a question for us to act on. The conversation of why do we keep doing You've heard it. You keep doing what you keep doing. You keep getting what you keep getting. It's, yeah. it's no, the definition of insanity, right? It's doing yeah, it's, a different result. And, and so I don't, you know, I don't want to sound like a martyr. And I do believe that you and I had a conversation and it made a difference. That you're having conversations with these women. That's all I'm talking about. So when I was on the call uh, with Tiffany, there, there were probably 10 13 of you, that's a conversation. And 10 or 13 of you went out and had a conversation. That's the ripple effect. Yeah. And that's what needs to happen. But we've got to have the conversations. Yes. Well, and I that's what I do in my life coaching. I, I, I say, who are you? I don't, I don't want to know, you know, I don't want to know what your granddaddy did. Um, yes, you are a result of what, who your grandfather is. And we will not erase that but we will deal with in your heart, not your granddad's heart, what's in your heart. 
I love it. All right. Well, Dr. Fran, we have come to the speed round portion of my talk, which you know is my fun time. And I really, really love it. It's my favorite part. Okay, let's see. This is when I really get to know you. Really? Um, what is your cocktail of choice, Dr. Fran? Ooh, ooh, I like so many. Um, today, <laughs> I love, I like so many. <laughs> um, yeah, I love a black Russian. Oh, I have not had a black Russian in 20 damn years. I haven't had one in so long, but I, I love that taste of the sweetness of it. Yeah. Um, but today I feel like a margarita day. <laughs> I think so. I think so. <laughs> today is a margarita day. What is a mantra or quote that you live by? You probably have 20, but you're going to have to pick one. Um, I am a light. Mm. Oh, I love that. I am a light. I am a light. Oh, that can just bring us out of the darkness. That's what we need. I am a light. Oh, that breaks me up. What simple thing do you do for yourself? A self-care tip. Um, that's easy. The, the, as soon as I open my eyes in the morning, I smile. Very first thing I do. When I say smile, I'm talking about open up my mouth and show my teeth. Smile. <laughs> not, not a phony one. Because I, I want to put on a, an armor for me as soon as I get started. Because the world will often change where, change where I won't say I am a light. So I put that smile on instantly. And then I spend the first hour in quiet time with my higher being, with me. And sometimes that's my conscious, my level of conscious conversation. Everybody does it the first thing in the morning. I just change mine from what in the world I'm supposed to do today. Because that's how I used to start out. Oh, Lord, is it six o'clock? I got to get it. I got to get it. Oh, you know. I change that conversation to having conversations about me that day. That puts me where I can be a light. And I begin that with a smile. And that's religious. Every single day of my life, I, I do that. Oh my gosh, I love this. And I'm going to have to start doing this myself. <laughs> um, what makes you feel unstoppable? Ooh, this work. <laughs> yes. Yeah, this work. My, my passion for touching as many individuals as I can is huge. This work. I retired uh, last December uh, from being a teacher, uh, educator for 45 years to be an educator and in a different way in this work, in this tough, heart-wrenching work where sometimes I'm cursed completely out. But this work, I'm unstoppable. <laughs> yes, you are. You are. Oh my gosh, I love it. Who do you most admire, Dr. Fran? Um, I'm going to say Black men. Hmm. Um, that came really quick to me. Black men, my father, my godfather, my brother, who are all deceased, Martin Luther King Jr., who are all deceased. Uh, uh, black men who, uh, my sons, who I had to change my discriminatory thinking so that I can get them ready for this world. Um, I admire them going out every single day and them staying strong and standing in their knowing every day. Mm. Oh my gosh, I love it. What's exciting you the most right now? Ooh, um, what's exciting to me is democracy. Oh, um, gosh, it, it, democracy is exciting, yes. <laughs> it's exciting to me. Look at, if we just look at what we achieved, rather than how many votes went to this, this person with pink polka dots on them, 
and how many went to this person with black and white and green stripes. Instead of us, if we just could see what we did and the power that we have to change things, if we could just bottle that up and see that, that's exciting to me right now. And the opportunity to, to shine the light on that is really exciting to me now. You're right, because we had a record number of people saying, my vote, I'm going to use my voice, I'm going to vote, I'm going to make it a priority, I'm going to do it. I could not believe the number of people that voted this year. Yes. I mean, it is so wonderful to know yes. that people feel so good about using their voice and they feel that they're, they want to be counted. Yes. I love that. And that I am important. That's what my social justice life coaching is about. The who am I? I am important. It didn't matter to me what your view is. It matters that you see yourself an important contributor to this whole society. And that's what people can, if we, when we take that energy and turn it around, we just took that energy and turned it around and said, you individually made a huge difference in the, mil in the middle of millions of people. In the middle of that picture, just look at that picture. There you stand, just bright white, just bright black, just bright with polka dots on you, <laughs> whatever. And everything else was faceless around you. And you made all of that difference. If we could just change our energy, when we do, I believe we will. I when we change that energy. I believe it too. Dr. Fran, thank you so much for coming and talking to me today. I just, I knew it was going to be wonderful and it was. Thank you for having me. And thank you for your listeners and for doing the, these things. You are also contributing to the light, Elizabeth. And thank you for that. Oh, thank you for saying that. Thank you. Okay, guys, thank you for joining me today as I boohoo off the off the airwaves. <laughs> Remember to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review. This is the Conversations with Warrior Women podcast with me, Liz Swadek. Remember, every woman has a story. You just have to ask her. <laughs>